everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is caught for a touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Come on, boy, boy, can you get it up? Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Hope your 2011 is off to a great start. Great show coming up for you today. In our next segment, the Sports Business Radio headlines of the week. We're going to talk about the NFL coaching carousel going round and round. Later in the show, Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series, better known as the BCS. He's been on the job for about a year. We will catch up with him and talk about a system that has many opponents to it. A couple of other notes. Visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Become our Facebook friend or follow me on Twitter. You can find those icons on the homepage of sportsbusinessradio.com. Joined in studio by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, uh, Happy New Year. Same to you. I uh, hope you had a good time down in Zona. I uh, stayed up here in the chilly and wet Portland for Christmas. <laughs> well, I'm back from Zona, and speaking of Arizona, it's the site of the BCS National Championship game on Monday, and Griggs, this has never happened before. Both StubHub and Ticket City have actually stopped sales for the BCS National Championship game between Auburn and Oregon due to a run on tickets that even the Super Bowl hasn't seen. We're going to give you some of the ticket price numbers that this game is commanding coming up in our headline segment. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is SBR. Back with more after this. Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
It's time, baby. Special news bulletin. At Sports Business Radio, we're always on top of what's happening in the world of sports. And each week, we break down the stories you need to know about. This is Headlines. I want to be in the headlines. On Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio Headlines brought to you by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit WarsawCenter.com for more information. Headline number one, it is the hottest ticket that the sports world has seen for years. Both StubHub and Ticket City have actually stopped sales for the BCS National Championship game between Oregon and Auburn on Monday due to a run on tickets that even the Super Bowl can't command. Prior to shutting down sales, BCS championship tickets on StubHub were starting at more than $3,800 and climbing to as high as Griggs. Are you ready for this? $16,000 for a seat on the 50-yard line. The average ticket price for the game, slightly over $1,100, making it the top-selling event in the history of StubHub. Right now, it's unprecedented, said StubHub founder Dan Rubendahl to the Portland Oregonian. It's absolutely the craziest scene we've ever seen. I mean, this is bigger than any Super Bowl we've seen in 20 years. As the old Nike commercial used to say, chicks dig the long ball. People love offense. Auburn, Oregon. I mean, are you going to be surprised if this is like a 65-61 triple overtime thriller? I think it's going to be lots of scoring and people love scoring. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's what's driving the tickets. I mean, it's it's two different teams, too. It's not the same old, same old. So people are excited about it. Like we talked about before we went on air, Auburn fans travel well, Oregon fans travel well. So you're, it's going to be a great crowd. I think it's going to be an awesome scene. By the way, face Ticket price, $350. So, Griggs, here's my question. If someone came to you, if you had a ticket to the game, you know, here we are based in Oregon. A lot of people went to the University of Oregon. This is the fulfillment of a lifelong dream, maybe once in a lifetime. If someone came up to you and said, I'm going to give you $16,000 or even $5,000 for your ticket, do you still go to the game and watch your team or are you selling that ticket? You know, uh, that's a good question. And I... I'm a big time Duck fan, so I would have to go to the game because who knows? 114 years it hasn't happened for Oregon, so I mean, <laughs> it might not happen again. <laughs> and we probably won't be around 114 years from now if they uh, do it again yeah, and it not. takes this long. <laughs> well, we'll see, but uh, tickets in high demand for that game. Headline number two the NFL coaching carousel the Monday after the regular season, always known as Black Monday. That's when coaches are usually fired. This year, It actually wasn't as bad as some people predicted. The Browns fired Eric Mangini. The Raiders fired Tom Cable. But the Vikings retain Leslie Frazier. He's going to be their head coach full-time now after being the interim coach. And then Jason Garrett is being retained by the Dallas Cowboys. Griggs, the thing that's interesting, also Jack Del Rio and Gary Kubiak retained by their teams. The thing that's interesting here is I think the looming lockout is having an effect on some of these decisions. If you're an owner, do you want to go pay a coach a big, big contract more than what you're paying your current coach when there may not even be football games. I think most owners are saying, you know what, I'm going to stick with my current guy who I know what he's costing me, and then I'll see how the the lockout unfolds. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're just kind of, it's almost that laying low mentality, like let's just wait and see what happens, except for the obvious fires that you kind of knew were going to happen. Yeah, I think it's kind of people just waiting to see how it plays out and then move on depending on lockout. Our next headline 
sticking in the NFL. The Sports Business Daily reports that ESPN and the NFL have agreed to broad terms on a new media rights deal that will be worth nearly $2 billion a year. A formal deal has not officially been finalized, but ESPN has agreed to pay about 40% more per year to extend its rights to Monday Night Football. And Griggs, the amazing thing about this is that ESPN ABC, they're not even in the rotation to carry the Super Bowl, and they're still willing to pay $2 billion a year, which again is 40% more than they're paying right now. It shows you how valuable the NFL on TV is. And as we always talk on this show, the rights for the NFL, when you combine the package from all the networks, it's worth more than the TV rights deals for the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, and the PGA combined. It shows you how valuable those rights are. Big time. And I think Monday Night Football is such a marketable item because it's usually the only event going on Monday night. So, I mean, you know people, any sports fan is going to be watching your product on ESPN, you know, for Monday Night Football. So I think that's what makes it kind of a big deal, too. And they've started to get some traction on ESPN. I mean, for years, ABC had Monday Night Football. Now people are getting more used to going to cable, not only for Monday Night Football, but as we're seeing right now, all the BCS games are on ESPN instead of on over-the-air TV on Fox. Our next headline... The University of Michigan fired coach Rich Rodriguez after three seasons as the head football coach there. As part of the firing, the school had to buy him out of the rest of his contract. They had to pay him $2.5 million. They saved themselves $1.5 million by waiting until after January 1st to fire Rodriguez. Brian, not really a surprise here. Uh, losing seasons got thumped in their bowl game by Mississippi State. Worst bowl loss in the history of Michigan, 52-14. to uh, He's not a Michigan man, so lots of rumors about who the next head coach could be, but this was an expensive buyout. People don't talk about how much it costs to terminate a coach, and when you're a coach like Rich Rodriguez, when he came in and he was wooed from West Virginia, they had to give him an expensive buyout, and like I said, they saved themselves a million and a half dollars by waiting till after January 1st, but two and a half million dollars to get rid of a coach who didn't perform, pretty expensive. Yeah, it's definitely a hit for Michigan. And like you said, Rich just never fit there. It just it never seemed right on the sidelines. Uh, you know, Michigan's a, a major school. It's got talent coming in all the time. And they just couldn't put it together and win games. And the bowl game was just devastating. And you knew it was going to happen after that bowl game. Our next headline, sticking in college football, some of the TV ratings for the BCS bowl games. Now, keep in mind, again, like I just said a moment ago, first time that all the BCS games have been on cable. They're on ESPN instead of over the air. So the numbers are down from last year when they were on Fox and on ABC. The Rose Bowl was on ABC. But they've given ESPN some of the biggest numbers that they've ever had in the history of their network. They earned an 11.7 overnight Nielsen rating for the TCU-Wisconsin Rose Bowl. First time the game was ever broadcast on cable. The figures the network's best non-NFL overnight ever. They got 214,000 viewers on ESPN3.com too, which is another thing ESPN does as part of this deal is they put the game on ESPN3.com. You're getting a lot of additional viewers there. Uh, ESPN earned an 8.4 overnight Nielsen rating for the Ohio State Arkansas All-State Sugar Bowl. That's up from last year. And then the ESPN uh, got a 6.7 US rating 10.6 million viewers for Monday night Stanford Virginia Tech Discover Bowl. That's down 
percent. So those are some of the numbers, and you know I think we're going to have to wait a few years to see do those numbers rise on ESPN or are they always going to be down from what they were on over the air TV on Fox and ABC. Our next headline, the NHL's Winter Classic. 68,000 people attended the game. It was the largest audience for a regular season game since 1975 on TV, a 2.3 rating. So, again, the NHL Winter Classic, they had to move the time of the game because of rain, so they had to move it to the evening time. But lots of people coming to watch hockey outside. You can't play all the games outside, Griggs, but the NHL has shown that when you do and there's some snowflakes falling and it's old-school hockey, people like it. I love it. And why not play in the rain and snow? I mean, make it like hockey should be, you know, get Weather, who cares? Do we play in anything? I think it's fun. I love the outside game. I love the crowd. The crowd's huge. And even moving the time of the game, they still kept the TV audience pretty prevalent. So that was cool. Last headline of the week, EA Sports has struck a major deal with Augusta National Golf Club to get the fame course and the Masters-related intellectual property for the first time into console versions of Tiger Woods PGA Tour. The version is going to go on sale March 29th. It'll be dubbed Tiger Woods PGA Tour 12, the Masters. It's going to include game modes in which players can seek to recreate historic Masters moments, including Woods' four wins there, and you can win virtual green jackets. We know that the Masters and Augusta National has always thumbed their nose at the rest of the world, but now they're coming to play ball, and they're letting their course be in a video game. I like it. I'd like to uh, try it out and uh, see how it looks. All right, coming up next, there's a new movie out, and it's from the makers of the people who organize The Hood to Coast. It's here in Oregon. We'll tell you about that. Coming up next, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. I'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. There's a new documentary. It's called Hood to Coast. It's going to be shown in 350 theaters on January 11th. The documentary tracks four of the 1,000 teams of 12 runners. The Hood to Coast, which began in 1982, is the largest relay race in the world. I'm joined by Anna Campbell, She's the producer of Hood to Coast, the movie. Anna, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Oh, it's our pleasure to be here. So there's so many races around the world. What was it about this race that inspired you to do a movie about the Hood to Coast? Well, for me personally, it was the connection. I had, you know, I'm an Oregonian, and I had heard about the race my entire life growing up. I think it, you know, was 
started shortly after I was born. And um, my dad had run it a few times. I ran it for the first time in 2005. And then in 2007, I dragged my then boyfriend, now husband, out to do it. And he fell in love with it. And that was that, you know. It's interesting. We're a sports business show. Many people know that Nike and Adidas have headquarters in Oregon. But how many runners from outside of Oregon are participating in the hood to coast on an annual basis? Half of the thousand teams are actually not from Oregon. So all 50 states are represented in well over 40 countries every single year come from around the globe to do this thing. Tell us a little bit about the movie. When did you shoot it and how long did it take to shoot? We shot in 2008. Um, what happened was uh, our director, Christoph and uh, his co-director, Marcy Hume, came up and moved to Oregon, basically. We're lo- living down in Los Angeles now, as much as I would prefer to be living in Oregon home base. Uh, Marcy came over from London, where she was working in documentary television, uh, and they moved themselves in in about April and started shooting with teams, filming their preparations up to the race and their backstories and really getting a sense of who these people were who were choosing to go on this trek. And then for the two days of the race, we had 110 crew members working 24 hours a day, uh, capturing every single little thing that happened and some things that, you know, everything in between. How many hours of footage in all did you guys shoot? I think it ended up at 580. Wow. Ridiculous. So, I mean, what do you do with that excess footage that's left on the cutting room floor? Do you have any plans to do anything with you know, TV, do another movie? That's a lot of hours. Oh, it is. And there's a million stories in there. I think for us, there certainly will be things that we'd love to include on the DVD, you know, which is a great place to be able to share other things that you loved but, but weren't able to make it into the tight 140-minute movie that we came up with. Um, the stories that we did end up following, we followed four teams, as you said, really intimately along the course. There are their preparations all the way through through the big day, they really capture a a broad cross-section of the kind of people who run this. There are stories that are more emotional. There are stories that are rollicking and fun and and hysterically funny. So I'm really happy with the balance that we ended up with, I think, in the ultimate product. But you're right. There's The problem with Hood to Coast is there are as many stories as there are runners, and that's what makes it such a special event. We're joined by Anna Campbell. She's the producer of Hood to Coast, the movie. It's in 350 theaters nationwide on January 11th. I saw there was one woman, an elderly woman, her doctor advised her after I think she had a heart ailment not to run in the race, but she worked hard. Kind of, you know, it's like the Rocky-esque comeback for this woman to run in the race. She winds up uh, running in the race. Tell us a little bit about that story. Absolutely. Kathy Ryan is on a beautiful team called Heart and Soul, and they're all masters, uh, supermasters women. Uh, all above 50. She joined the team a few years back and was so pleased to join them. And then in 2007, she actually died of a heart attack on the course and was extremely fortunate that the van behind her happened to have two state troopers who were trained in CPR and had just finished their CPR training. And they worked on her and brought her back to life. Fortunately, the ambulance was a little ways away. Now she's had triple bypass. She has two stints in her heart and she wanted to come back and run the race the very next year. So that all happened to her in 2007. In 2008, we were able to capture her return. Talk about the state of running in the United States. I remember, you know, 20, 30 years ago, running was a big deal and uh, beating the record for the mile was something that was highly publicized. Now, except for during the Olympics, it doesn't seem to be as front of mind with people as it used to be. Do you think a movie like this helps bring running back to the the front burner, so to speak, with uh, people here in America? Oh, I certainly hope so. I think that I don't think that the sport is gone. I think that what's happened is it's actually become part of everyone's everyday lives. So for us, that was one of the reasons that capturing sort of everyday people running this instead of focusing entirely on the elite teams. They're represented well in the film and we did an amazing panel that will be part of the uh, experience with Mary Decker Slaney and Bart Yasso from Runner's World Magazine. Um, You know, I, I just heard a statistic that something like 25 million people in America report 
running at least once a week. I don't think this thing is gone. I think that it's just sort of out of the public eye as far as, um, you know, winning races. So I think that this is something that's important to people that they make part of their daily lives. What was the most unexpected thing that happened during shooting this movie? I mean, you know, you just said you had 500 and some odd hours of, of footage here. Was there one thing that you experienced that you went, wow, didn't see that coming? You know, we planned meticulously for this thing for months. We knew that we had a finite amount of time to get everything we needed. The race only lasts so long. And one of the things that uh, we not forgot to take into consideration but didn't realize how much it was going to be difficult for us was that in the middle of rural Oregon, the race is 200 miles long, there is no cell phone reception whatsoever. So communication for all of our teams, you know, was just not available to us. So fortunately, everyone knew their marching orders and was able to go. But there was probably a six or seven hour period where everyone was just off on their own. And thank goodness we had such amazing professionals capturing this thing. It was, was, um, you know, a little scary to be out there all by yourself. For our audience who hasn't participated in the Hood to Coast or may not know what it is, explain a little bit about what it is. I mean, it's a relay race. You're doing it from Mount Hood to the Oregon coast, to the ocean, literally. It's 197 miles. But maybe you can explain. I mean, this is a pretty intricate thing. You've got people driving cars alongside of the runners, and they're picking them up. And and how does that all work? Yeah, it is. It's a pretty special event. So basically, everyone forms a team of 12, and each team of 12 splits into two different vans. Uh, and so there's six people in a van, and you basically just leapfrog ahead like that. Each person runs three different legs. So you start at Mount Hood with van one, and then you exchange to van two halfway through. And what everybody re- uh, doesn't realize, I think, when they sign up to do this thing the first time is, even though it sounds like, oh, while well, the other van is running, we'll have time to sleep and get relaxed and everything, you've got to move your legs ahead to be ready to meet up with everyone and go for there. So the lack of sleep is one of the things that really ends up getting people down and being really tough when you get down to those last legs that you really got to push yourself through and find the mental capacity to make it, you know, work. Generally, how long from start to finish for one of these teams? Oh, it really depends on the team. I think the Nike team record is uh, something like 14 hours for the entire course. I could be wrong about that, but, you know, they have a cutoff time, I believe it's 35 hours. I could be wrong about that too, but there is a limited amount of time, but generally most of the teams make it through by then, so it just depends on the speed. One of the other cool things about it is that uh, they decided to stagger the start time, so actually the slowest teams start first. It's all about coming together on the beach and making sure that, you know, so the elite teams start at the very end of the first day and they catch up and beat everybody anyway. But it becomes a big party where everyone comes together as opposed to who gets there first and who doesn't. All right. And a last question. Tell us how people can get details for seeing the movie on January 11th. It's in 350 theaters nationwide. How do people go to this movie if they want to see it? You can visit our website, hoodtocoastmovie.com, and there's also, uh, you can get the tickets at your local theater box offices. You can find the locations on the website right there. What was the rationale beside, behind doing this for one day only instead of letting it have a little bit of an extended run? Well, it's actually an incredible thing for a documentary to get any kind of a wide release. Because the teams were coming from all over the country, it was really important to us that we made sure that everyone who had run the race, who had heard about this race, I mean, it's just mythic in the running world, uh, got a chance to experience it firsthand and, and get a sense of what it was about. So this is actually an incredible thing, and we're very lucky to, to have the one day. And the good news is, if, uh, if good things happen for this one day, there's always a chance it can come back. And it sounds like, from what you said earlier in the interview, there's a chance it may wind up on DVD so you can watch it at home as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. We think it'll be out on DVD by the time the race rolls around this summer, but we really want everyone to come out because this big celebration of running is going to be a way for us all to come together all across the country. Well, I will be at your Portland premiere, and I will look forward to uh, meeting you in person there. Fantastic. Can't wait to have you. 
Thanks, Anna. Take care. You too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Coming up next, BCS Executive Director Bill Hancock. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the Bowl Championship Series, better known as the BCS. Bill, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Bill, you've been on the job for a little more than a year now. Evaluate your year on the job and the current state of the BCS from your perspective, if you would. It's been a great year for me. As you probably know, I was director of the Final Four before this, so I've got to direct the best event in college basketball, and now I get to direct the best event in college football. I'm I'm, I'm a very lucky human being. I know that, and I don't take it for granted. Um, The the BCS is strong. We have our critics, but the fact is that the coaches and the athletes uh, appreciate what we're doing, and certainly fans. We're going to have a game Monday night that will be seen by – uh, more folks that watch than watch any college football game all year. Certain more folks by a long shot. More folks than watch the Final Four, uh, the NBA playoffs, NHL, and the World Series. This is a tremendously popular event. Yeah, when you last joined me on Sports Business Radio, you talked about the ultimate goal of the BCS. Let me play that clip for you real quick. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or what's bad for the BCS. So, Bill, you get number one versus number two in the national championship game. Most people would agree it's Auburn and Oregon. But what do you tell TCU fans who haven't – TCU hasn't lost a game in two years, and they don't get a crack at the national championship game. I see Division II football playoffs. The number five seed made it all the way to the championship game, so it wasn't one versus two in Division II. What do you tell TCU and their fans? Well, first of all, I'm very proud of TCU. Coach Patterson is one of the best people in our business. Um, they're very well coached. They played well. And the, the Rose Bowl game didn't surprise me. I knew it would be a compelling game right to the end. Uh, so I'm very proud of them. And, of course, what we have is a, uh, a two-team uh, national championship and, and uh, two teams play in it and not three. Um, I would congratulate them on their season. I would talk to them about the great experience they had at the Rose Bowl, uh, an experience, frankly, uh, for them, experience of a lifetime. And those athletes uh, will be they'll, they'll be thinking about what they accomplished and 
and their their dream trip to the Rose Bowl forever. So uh, I'd congratulate them on a tremendous season. Bill, last time you were on, we talked about how the process works. It's almost like a draft for the BCS bowl games to choose who gets to play in their bowl games after one and two are matched against each other. A question I've gotten in the last week from a lot of people, why didn't TCU, the third-ranked team, play Stanford, the fourth-ranked team? Can you explain briefly how that draft process works? Because the way you explained it last year was that you know you get a choice, and then you have to wait again for the choice to come back around to get your second choice. Yes, it, it's very simple. Um, the first thing that happens is automatic qualifiers are placed in the bowls uh, where they are, are, are contracted to place, to, to be that is. And that, of course, was Virginia Tech, um, the two teams in the championship game, and then Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. And this year we had a, another contracted issue, which was that the highest-ranked team from a non-AQ conference would play in the Rose Bowl game. So TCU automatically went to the Rose Bowl. Um, and then, then, the, then the, uh, the rotation happens, and then, then the selection order happens. And this year, um, the, the, the uh, Sugar Bowl got to replace Auburn, and uh, they chose Arkansas to do that. And then the next in the rotation was Orange, and they chose Stanford. Uh, they, they chose the highest-ranked team, uh, the team with the most compelling national story, uh, and, and they made the decision for Stanford, and, uh, and then Connecticut went to the Fiesta Bowl. But th- that's the simple way it happens is that the contracted teams are, fa- are placed in their bowls, and then the bowls on a rotating basis choose the other teams. Do you think it will ever be changed so maybe third and fourth ranked teams, the best matchup after one and two could take place, or do you see it uh, kind of being the way it is for, for the foreseeable future? The future's not been determined. I I, uh, I know that every year uh, the commissioners and the bowl folks get together and talk about ways to improve what we have. And, of course, this is the first year of a four-year contract, so uh, there, there won't be significant changes, I don't think, um, until three more seasons have gone by. But uh, in a couple of years, the group will get together and decide what to do, what to do next, uh, and, and every, every idea will be considered. Something else that uh, a lot of people have wondered if it would change. I mean, obviously, we're not headed towards the playoff, but with the BCS, we're looking at a 44-day layoff for Auburn before they play in this game, 37 days for Oregon. That's a long time, and I know there's a lot of interest for this game, but do you ever feel like, wow, it's just too long, like people are waiting so long for this game to actually occur? You know, I, I know the athletes will be ready to play Monday night. Uh, they'll, they'll get to do what they do best, which is which, what, what they love to do which is play football, I don't hear complaints from athletes about the long layover. Uh, you know, they have, <clears throat> excuse me, they, have, they need time to recover, little uh, nibbling injuries to recover. Uh, they need time for finals. They get time at Christmas at, to be home with their families. I, I don't ever hear from the athletes that there's too much time in between games. I do hear from fans on occasion, and I think, of course, that that's because the fans, would they just want more football. Um I had a guy call me yesterday, and he said he was so happy that there were games uh, after January 1st, so uh, he would have football. And he was he was saying, there's no football on tonight. What am I going to do? <laughs> so, this game is so popular. Fans love it so much that they just can't get enough. 
We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. Bill, there's been a lot said about how much money potentially is being left on the table with the BCS as opposed to a playoff series. Let me play this quick clip for you from Jim Delaney in front of Congress. I am absolutely sure that an NFL-style football playoff would provide maybe three or four times as many dollars to the Big Ten than the present system does. There's no doubt in my mind that we are leaving hundreds of millions of dollars on the table for the reasons that have been expressed here um, around this table. So there is more money out there. So we know, and, and I know from doing this show, money drives the sports industry. If there's all this money that's being left on the table reportedly, and we know that there are many athletic departments that are losing money, why does the NCAA contract out its most profitable property, which is Division One football playoffs? Well, the NCAA, first of all, does what the membership wants, and at least that's the way it's supposed to be. And the membership in this case has said, we, we want to keep what we have in college football. And about the money, isn't it refreshing that a group has said, you know, we would rather keep what's best for the student-athletes uh, and, and, and leave the money behind? Uh, some of our critics are all fixated on money, and the fact of the matter is that our group has decided, no, what we have is the best for the athletes. Let's stick with it. That, I totally see your perspective there. I guess when you hear that, but then you hear it also when athletic directors are talking about, hey, our athletic department's losing lots of money. We've got our secondary sports that are hard to support now. You just wonder and scratch your head, well, look, if you did this, then you'd have that money and, and you wouldn't need to uh, you know, go to other sources to try and fundraise, I guess. You know, it's interesting about the money, though, uh, that – there's, in, in the whole big picture, there's not a there's not a terrific amount of money from the BCS per school. Uh, I would think last year, for example, that the Big Ten schools probably wound up with about maybe two million dollars each from the BCS, and that's just a guess, maybe a little bit less. And uh, one home game at Penn State, I would imagine, uh, brings in. Some six to eight million. So if you think about it in that perspective, the BCS would be about maybe like <laughs> maybe one quarter of one home game for Penn State. Well, so that kind of makes the point is if you have a playoff system and you've got these home games where a team like Penn State is making six million dollars as opposed to two million dollars for playing in a bowl game, isn't that more lucrative for the school? Well, I think if you if you double the BCS money, um, obviously if it's a home if it's if there were a playoff and it all the games were played at Penn State, that money would not go to Penn State. It would go to the to the BCS group, which would then divide it among all the conferences. So it's un, it's it's not appropriate to say that a playoff home game would would make the same amount of money for Penn State that a regular season game does. But but even if you even if you double the money, my point being, if you double the money from the BCS, it still wouldn't add up to what one regular season home game adds, adds up to. And if you diminish, if because of a playoff as most people think you would diminish the revenue from regular season, at what point is have you really ever gained anything from the playoff? Uh, nobody really knows about the hard dollars, and I heard what Commissioner Delaney said, and, but the fact of the matter is nobody's ever evaluated the hard dollars of this. And also the, the, uh, the lost 
from regular season, from television and and in any other ways that the regular season gets diminished by a playoff. So it, it's not as simple as it looks. When might such an evaluation take place? Is that, you know, like you said earlier in the interview, three years away from the contract when that expires? Is that something you guys might take a look at? Yes, generally uh, a couple of years before the contract expires is the time that the schools and conferences begin to look at the future. And so what will happen, I think, is sometime during 2012, uh, every school will have a chance to visit with its commissioner about what it wants to do in the future. And then I would think probably by the end of 2012, some uh, some decision will be made by the group. I want to talk, I know you've got just a few minutes left, but I want to talk quickly about how the money for a BCS game is divided. Like you said a few minutes ago, it's really not that much per school. The way I understand it is right off the top, uh, expenses, including bonuses to your coach, those are taken out. Then you split that with your conference members. So let's use Oregon in the Pac-10 as an example. They're pooling their money along with the money that Stanford got, Washington, Arizona for their bowl games. Then they're splitting that after expenses with the rest of the conference. And then whatever remains is your take-home. Is that the correct equation? Every conference does it a little differently. I think that's generally correct for most conferences. Uh, expenses come off the top, and then the money is pooled, uh, money from all the bowl games and from the NCAA basketball tournament and, uh, and any other sources is pooled and divided among all the members. So here's a question I've had since the last time I had you on. UConn just played in the Fiesta Bowl. And I'm using them as an example. The fans, for a variety of reasons, didn't travel well from Stores, Connecticut to Glendale, Arizona. They were not able to purchase or sell all the blocks of tickets that they purchased, almost 17,000. They also had a number of hotel rooms that went unsold. I've read media reports that said they were short $2.5 million with unsold tickets and unsold hotel rooms. So my question to you is, does that $2.5 million come out of the expenses portion, or is UConn on the hook for that $2.5 million? You know, I don't know the Big East formula for that. I, I would be hesitant to speculate. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the best guy to talk about the numbers of it. What I do know is this, that the Connecticut athletes had a terrific experience at the Fiesta Bowl and uh, an experience that they'll remember for life. And uh, I think we everybody needs to keep that in mind. And, and I would also say that if, if you, you also have to remember, again, that the revenue – uh, from all the bowl games and from the NCAA tournament is all pooled together for all the schools in every conference. Uh, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm not the detail guy on the, on the Big East formula itself. One more question on that. I know there's a requirement if you're playing in a BCS bowl game that you have to buy a certain number of tickets and in some cases hotel rooms. Is there any chance that that requirement of buying those tickets may go away so you wouldn't have a scenario where if a team doesn't travel well, they might lose money on unsold tickets? It's been a good model, frankly. Uh, In most cases, the schools want more tickets than what's allocated. So there's a balance between... uh, uh, assuring that the schools will have enough tickets and and then and then making sure the schools can sell what they get. The number that we have has been negotiated over the years. It's one that's satisfactory to the conferences, and uh, I don't hear much talk about changing that. I, I don't think we want to get in a position of having to reduce the number of tickets that are available to uh, to a school when there's a high demand. Last question for you, speaking of high-demand tickets, tickets for the national championship game Monday. 
I've seen them going for as high as $16,000 a piece. StubHub says there's never been this demand for tickets, including Super Bowls. So, where are you going to be watching the game from? I know you're probably in Arizona. You like to uh, go to the BCS games, as you told us last time. Where do you like to take the game in when you're uh, watching a BCS game? You know, I'm... <laughs> That's a very good question. I, I mostly get to see the game when I get my DVD of it after the game. Uh, we're all working, and uh, I, I, I have a position in the press box where everybody knows where I will be, uh, but usually I'm, I'm, I'm bouncing around, and frankly, unfortunately, I, I won't get to see as much of the game as I'd like to. So, I mean, are you kind of uh, in charge of the staff and making sure that all the game operations are functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning? So, sounds like you're uh, you're working that night and not able to watch as much as you might like. Yeah, there's there's a lot to do, and lots of people are involved in this, and particularly the Fiesta Bowl staff uh, does a great job. They they put on a tremendous game, and they actually take care of all the details. I just get to. Uh, I get to watch them work and get all the credit for all the good things that they do. <laughs> How many people on that staff, just out of curiosity? I mean, are we talking a few hundred people, 50 people? How many people make well, the, the championship the happen? Staff? I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 30. Wow. It's a lot of work for 30 people. Yeah, it is. And of course, this year they put on three games. Yeah. That's a lot, of, a lot of work. They'll be happy when this is all behind them. Bill, thank you so much for making time to join us, and uh, best of luck with the BCS National Championship, and we'll talk to you again in the future on Sports Business Radio. Thanks again for having me on. Your questions are all great, and uh, I look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks, Bill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, We'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports 
Business Radio. Well, if you surf the internet for good stories every week like I do, you came across the story of Ted Williams. No, not the Boston Red Sox player who's deceased, but the story of Ted Williams, a man from Ohio, homeless, on the side of the road for most of the last year, year and a half. And he didn't have a sign that says, work for food, but he had a sign that says, I have a golden voice, and he asked for money, and when you paid him money on the side of the road, you got to hear his voice. He has an incredible voice, and three million downloads in one day of a story. Someone drove by an overpass, got him on camera, heard his voice, and all of a sudden, this thing went viral. Griggs, it took a little over a day, and then the guy has an agent... And then in one of the the best PR moves of the year, and I know we're only a few days into the year, but in a long time, let's say, the Cleveland Cavaliers offered Ted Williams a job to do voiceover, and they also said, as part of your job, we will give you a place to live. I think it's a great story. He was on the CBS Morning News. He was on the Today Show. He's on Jimmy Kimmel. It's just a great story. And... You know, people have said this is kind of the Susan Boyle, the woman who skyrocketed to fame after uh, she didn't look like she could sing. But when she opened her mouth, you went, wow, that was incredible. And it's just it's great. But I I really give the Cavaliers a lot of credit for uh, reaching out to Ted Williams and giving him a job. Yeah, great story. Uh, When I saw the video, I was like, oh, what is this? And then the guy is legit. I mean, the guy has pipes I can't believe. And, uh, yeah, Cleveland, great move. I'm waiting for The Decision featuring Ted Williams. That would be funny. (laughs) Well, I mean, as I tweeted this week, never judge a book by its cover. You look at Ted Williams, and before he opens his mouth, you go, wow, what's he going to sound like? And when he opens his mouth, you're like, holy cow, he does have a golden voice, and he was reunited with his mom. And, you know, I just thought it was interesting. NFL Films has also said they may use Ted Williams. So here's a guy that a week ago, no one knew who he was. He was on the side of a road in Ohio. Now he's got an agent. He's being wooed by all the talk shows, and he's got job offers. So good for him. A lot of thank yous on our show this week. Bill Hancock, the head of the BCS. Thank you for him making time to join us. Our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Jared Melzer, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, Kalkoff Bikes, and New School Media Coaching. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand anytime via podcast. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page. We're on iTunes. Subscribe to us there. I'm on Twitter, at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.